Okay, so this is desire part one. How can our longings bring us to God? I will be giving um, in the, the second part of this term, the first lecture of that second part will be uh, part two of this talk, and that will be um, how will our longings be fulfilled. So I won't talk too much about fulfillment tonight, which may be um, <coughs> difficult, but uh, we will start, yeah, we'll start by talking about longings uh, mostly, although a little bit of fulfillment, so don't worry too much. <laughs> um, so a friend of mine who recently published a memoir told me about some of her teenage escapades that she looked back on with regret when she and her friends would tease vulnerable people. We just wanted to have power, she said, like all teenagers do. I stared at her. Power? Who wants power? When I was a teenager, I just wanted people to like me and understand me. Ideally, people who had read The Lord of the Rings four times. Also. <laughs> but that never happened. One can dream. I would have been horrified by the thought of doing things to actually make people mad at me. My teenage sins looked pretty different from my friends. What did you want as a teenager? Can you remember? Maybe some of you still are teenagers. Think about what you want. What do you most want now? So tell me what you want, what you really, really want. <laughs> what are the thoughts that keep you up at night? What do you spend your money on? Where does your time go? Tell me not just what you think you want, but what you actually want. What is your vision of what the good life looks like? What does your heart yearn for? And how do you act accordingly? I want you to keep those questions in mind as we go through this lecture tonight, because that's what this talk is going to be about. What our hearts desire and how those desires shape our actions. I'm going to make the argument that desire isn't something to escape from or to mindlessly indulge, but rather a force that God gives us so we can find our purpose in him. There are two spiritual autobiographies that I'll be referring to this talk. The first is St. Augustine's Confessions, and that was written in 400 AD by a North African bishop. So you might think it's way too long ago to have anything to say to us today, but I will disagree. The other is C.S. Lewis's Surprise by Joy, which was published in 1935. English author, in case you don't know who C.S. Lewis is. And in both of these books, the concept of desire is a predominant theme. And it's an integral part of the author's journey toward God. Augustine and Lewis will serve as our guides tonight. I figure if you quote enough C.S. Lewis, people will automatically believe what you say. So <laughs> that's my, my theory tonight. So for this lecture, I'm going to follow the biblical model of creation, fall, and redemption. And first we're going to look at the God-given purpose of desire, that's creation, and then at how it's become disordered, and people have made mistaken attempts at reordering it, that's the fall. And then finally, at how it can be rightly ordered again, that's redemption. So first, creation. What is the purpose of desire? Well, the Bible contains many expressions of longing, from the erotic poetry of Song of Songs, to cries for justice in the prophets, to beautiful psalms of seeking God. Psalm 42 begins, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Jesus said, blessed are those 
who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. But often we skip right to the second part of this beatitude. In a culture of immediate gratification, we want to be filled, but we don't really want to experience hunger. But Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who are already full, like hopefully all of you are tonight after that meal. <laughs> well, why is that? Why do we need to hunger and thirst at all? If we never experience the sensation of hunger, what would happen to us? What would happen? Yeah, we would starve. The experience of hunger is what drives us toward food. Our bodies need certain nutrients to function the way that they were designed to do. They're predisposed to hunger for the food that fuels them. Likewise, our spirit is predisposed to hunger for something outside of itself that will nourish it. Augustine opens his confessions with a famous statement about human purpose. Thou hast made us for thyself, and restless is our heart until it comes to rest in thee. Restless is our heart until it comes to rest in thee. In Augustine's view, we aren't just animals who arrived here by chance, but rather creatures designed for a relationship with their creator. Whatever we desire more than God will ultimately be a dead end. Ecclesiastes tells us that God has put eternity into man's heart. This means we can't be truly satisfied by temporal things. The Bible teaches us that God himself is the great desirer. He's often portrayed in scripture as an anguished lover who pursues his unfaithful spouse. And Jesus is the bridegroom longing for his bride. So part of us being created in God's image is that we also desire. God created out of a desire, not a need, but a desire for creatures to exist. So desire is actually a creative force. When we desire something, it's because we don't yet have it, or it doesn't yet exist. The process of creation starts with a desire to bring something uncreated into being. An artist doesn't just copy what's already there, unless they're kind of into knockoffs, but, <laughs> but makes something new out of a desire to see what will become. We speak because we desire to communicate. That's why I created this lecture tonight. We make clothes because we desire to be warm or perhaps beautiful. Desire is responsible for culture. Desire is also clearly responsible for new babies <laughs> and for the fact that we just keep on living. When somebody is deeply depressed, maybe some of you have been in this room, they often lack desire for even simple things like food, and that's a problem. Lack of desire is a problem. Desire is a good thing. It's a gift of God that can carry us toward truth and shape us into who God has designed us to be. Aristotle, old, dead Greek philosopher, <laughs> makes the claim that everything has a natural goal built into it. The philosophical word for this is telos. Tell us more, Liz. Okay. <laughs> I will. For example, an acorn's natural telus is to become an oak tree. A caterpillar's telus is to become a butterfly. butterfly. So Augustine takes up Aristotle's tradition with his claim that the human telus is to find our rest in God. In a world that considers the material reality to be all there is, the idea that we have a particular end goal, any natural purpose we're drawn toward is illogical. It's nonsense. But in the Christian view, we're created, not just by accident, but by a creator who knows and loves us. He made us for something, and that something or someone is himself. Tell us, the future is friendly. <laughs> That's a BC joke. <laughs> but what will draw us toward this, tell us? 
Augustine claims that our love is what carries us toward our goal. This is what he says. Fire tends upward. A stone tends downward. They are propelled by their own mass. They seek their own places. Oil poured under the water rises above the water. Water poured, poured on oil sinks under the oil. This is cooking 101. <laughs> they are moved by their own mass. They seek their own places. If they are out of order, they are restless. When their order is restored, they are at rest. My weight is my love. By it, I am carried wherever I am carried. My weight is my love. By it, I am carried wherever I am carried. Our love, our desire carries us. For Augustine, some of his primary desires as a young man were for knowledge, eloquence, and sex. Mm -hmm. So he acted accordingly, pursuing academic studies as well as less academic studies. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie Smith, in his well-known book, You Are What You Love, follows the Augustinian tradition of emphasizing the primacy of desire in shaping our actions and our hearts. Smith says, we are oriented by our longings, directed by our desires. The heart is like a multifunctional homing desire device that is part engine and part homing beacon. Part engine and part homing beacon. So our hearts tell us what we want and provide the drive to get there. We like to say, I think, therefore I am. Who said that first? Descartes. Descartes. Um, but simply <laughs> thinking the right things is not enough to change us. Sometimes we think if we just have the right theological beliefs, our actions will follow. But knowledge alone will not cause us to pursue God. We need the engine of our vision of the good life, the image that our hearts are longing for, drawn towards. So Jamie Smith claims that it's more true to say, I love, therefore I am. While C.S. Lewis writes of his early experiences of an intense, bittersweet longing that he felt when he encountered certain kinds of beauty. This is how he describes it. That unnameable something, desire for which pierces us like a rapier at the smell of a bonfire, the sound of wild ducks flying overhead, the title of the well at the world's end, the opening lines of Kubla Khan, the morning cobwebs in late summer, or the sound of falling waves. <coughs> he writes of these moments, before I knew what I desired, the desire itself was gone, the whole glimpse withdrawn, the world turned commonplace again, or only stirred by a longing for the longing that had just ceased. It had taken only a moment of time, and in a certain sense, everything else that had ever happened to me was insignificant in comparison. These experiences of desire, which C.S. Lewis called joy, became the driving force of his life. He had to have more of them, so he followed wherever they seemed to lead, convinced that the sensation of joy was the most worthwhile pursuit. His love was carrying him. So, part three, the fall. Well, it's actually part two. Introduction was part one. <laughs> so, desire is God-given. The first humans had desire to create, about naming the animals, for example, and procreate. But when sin entered the world, desire changed. It was still a powerful force, but in what we call the fall, desire became disordered, like oil and water in the wrong place. So I recently reread two books in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Magician's Nephew and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which my mom read to us when we were little, or, or my dad, I can't remember who. Both of these novels um, contain pictures of desire gone awry, affected by the fall, in Lewis's allegorical fantasy world. So you may remember these stories. 
In The Magician's Nephew, there is a powerful but evil queen, Jadis, who enters the new world Aslan has created. Diggory and Polly, the protagonist, must travel to an enchanted garden on top of a hill, and there they have to pluck a magic apple that will grow a new tree to protect Narya from the witch. She's also called the witch. But the garden is walled, and it bears this verse over the golden gates. Come in by the gold gates, or not at all. Take of my fruit for others, or forbear. For those who steal, or those who climb my wall, shall find their heart's desire, and find despair. When Diggory enters the garden, he finds the witch, who has stolen and eaten an apple, gaining immortality. Diggory resists taking the fruit the wrong way, even though the witch tells him it will cure his dying mother. Later, Aslan gives him an apple to take to his mother, and tells him that if he'd fed her a stolen apple, it would have only brought heartbreak in the end. Of course, this is a thinly veiled allegory for the Garden of Eden, the first story of human desire gone bad. Well, Jadis, also called the White Witch in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, is shaped by her own destructive desires. She does gain immortal life, but she um, is not the same. She passes the same um, destructive desires onto those she encounters, and she understands this power of hunger. So when centuries later she discovers the boy Edmund in the Narnia forest, she offers him whatever he wants to eat. He remembers what he chooses to eat. Turkish delight. Turkish delight. So he chooses Turkish delight, and he scarfs down a whole box. But he doesn't realize that this is enchanted candy, and the more he eats, the more hungry for it he becomes. His hunger for more Turkish delight, along with the delight of being a ruler over his siblings, causes him to betray his family to the White Witch, even though he knows in his heart that she's evil. This is the power of desire. To me, these stories reflect C.S. Lewis's own journey of longing. He followed whatever would allow more moments of joy, whether literature, nature, sex, or even the occult. I was sick with desire, he wrote. That sickness better than health. Though desire is a good and necessary gift, as we've seen, in a fallen world, we often experience desire as destructive or disheartening force. I thought of three ways that the fall can affect our desires, and you might be able to think of more, which we can talk about in the discussion time afterwards. But the three that I came up with was, first, that sin can direct our desires to the wrong object, so deception. Second, that sin can make our desires disproportionate, so idolatry. And third, that the fall can perfect prevent us from receiving good things, so unfulfillment. The first one is, uh, has to do with deception. If in Jamie Smith's language, desire is a compass, does the compass always point us to what's best for us? <clears throat> well, many would claim that it does, and there could be two reasons for this claim. First, a belief in humans is pretty much good, and second, a belief that as animals, we are and should be the product of our instinctual desires. We would never call animals immoral for following their instincts. Sometimes we might think that about our dogs and cats, but, <laughs> <laughs> but we don't have to look far to see that humans as good animals just doesn't really hold up. First, humans are capable of a lot of evil. And secondly, we consider some things evil even if we don't have a moral framework to make that claim. How many of you here have a Netflix account? Oh, not that many, congrats. <laughs> um, so, I often notice what shows and movies are trending on Netflix. I don't know if anyone else pays attention to this, but um, it's interesting to see what is trending. And I noticed that 
Serial killers and sexual predators seem to just fascinate people. Though we may deny that our own desires could ever become that destructive, we gravitate to these stories of out-of-control desire. Could it be that we know somewhere in ourselves lurk those same impulses? Have you ever thought about the three most classically popular monsters in film? Vampires, zombies, and werewolves. Why is it that those are the three that we always uh, go back to again and again? What, what captures our imagination about them? Well, can anyone think of anything that they have in common, those three? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, all three of them were once human. That's right. All three of them were once human. Once they're turned into a monster, they no longer have control over their own desires, but are driven by an insatiable lust for brains or blood. <laughs> I don't know what werewolves want. <laughs> Probably blood too. I think there's part of us that secretly wonders, is that me? Do I really have as much self-control as I think that I have? Is there a monster inside waiting to emerge? If you live in community with your family or at Libri, you'll understand pretty quickly that not everybody's desires are compatible. We have a lots of different ideas of what's good for ourselves and for other people. And this causes conflict. If my desire is to stay in bed, which it definitely was this morning, and not get up to cook, the students will have a frustrated desire for food. So we can't just assert that human desires are all good. Because of sin, our desires are disordered, and we don't necessarily desire the right things. Sometimes we desire things that are very bad for us and those around us. In a famous passage in Confessions, Augustine relates how he and his friends once stole some pears from a neighbor's tree not because they wanted any, but just because they wanted the thrill of doing something they knew was wrong. They just threw the pears to the hogs instead of eating them. He delighted in what he thought was his freedom to break the law without concern for his neighbors. So, though desire is a necessary force for reaching the good, we're often deceived as to what the good actually is, and we find ourselves in places that we never would have expected. So number two, addiction. The second way that desire gets disordered is when good desires become disproportionate. Big. In the first Harry Potter novel, I love my fantasy stories, <laughs> Harry finds the mirror of Erised, which shows him not his face, but his heart's desire. Anybody remember this story? Ron looks in the mirror and sees himself as head boy with the Quidditch trophy in his hand. Harry, who was orphaned as a baby, sees himself surrounded by his loving family. Harry returns to the mirror again and again to gaze longingly at the fantasy of having his parents with him, alive and well. When the headmaster Dumbledore finds Harry in front of the mirror, he cautions him that the mirror gives neither knowledge nor truth and has caused men to waste away <coughs> or go mad. He tells Harry it does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. It does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. <coughs> Our desire is intend to, intended to move us toward a goal, like the acorn becoming the tree, but often it gets stuck instead, just consuming itself. Augustine describes how his sexual desires became disordered. This is what he says. The enemy held fast my will and had made of it a chain and had bound me tight with it. For out of the perverse will came lust and the service of lust ended in habit. And habit, not resisted, became necessity. By these links, as it were, forged together, which is why I called it a chain, a hard bondage held me in slavery. A hard bondage held me in slavery. 
We often believe that simply following our desires will get us what we want. But we all too often discover that instead of us controlling our desires, our desires end up controlling us. Note the pattern Augustine lays out. First, lust or disordered desire. Then giving in to disordered desire creates habit. Then habit becomes necessity. I can relate. <laughs> this is the cycle of addiction. We've had a lot of students come through Libri who are struggling with addiction, whether to alcohol, porn, food, or even reading too much theology. What may have started as an innocent enjoyment of a good gift of God, such as drinking a glass of wine or noticing a beautiful woman, ended in slavery. The problem happens when we treat a good gift as an end in and of itself. When the created good becomes our God, we no longer have control over it. It has control over us. David Foster Wallace, novelist, gave a famous commencement speech called the This is Water. It's often quoted, but I think it's very well worth giving you a little bit of it here. This is what he says. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is a lot to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four, four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. So that's just a small excerpt of the speech. Um, it's worth reading the whole thing. This is not a Christian guy, but I think it's very interesting that he makes this claim about worship. We all worship. You get to choose what you worship. Mm -hmm. Paul writes in Romans 1 of how human desire has become twisted. They traded the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. So we're made to worship. But if we worship the created, that which is not made to bear our worship, our desire for it will consume us. How do we know what we're worshiping? Jamie Smith says, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Yikes. <laughs> when I read that, I was like, yikes. <laughs> what does your heart most cling to and confide in? What would you see if you looked in the mirror of Erised? Well, the third way desire is changed by the fall is that even when we have good, rightly ordered desires, we often don't get what we're longing for. So at Labrie, we often hear stories of longing. I talk to a lot of single people longing for a spouse. I talk to married people longing for a marriage that doesn't hurt every day. I talk to couples longing for a child. I talk to many who want a place they can belong, meaningful work, a restored relationship between humanity and nature a healthy body, good government, internal peace, and so on. These are all good desires, but very often they go unfulfilled, sometimes for the whole of someone's life. 
I'm not going to go too much into why some desires go unmet and what to do about that because that's what I'm going to talk about in my next lecture. No small goal. But I just want to make it clear that sometimes we have very good God-given desires and we still don't get what we want. That's also an effect of the fall, though it doesn't involve disordered desires in the same way. We instinctively know that something is missing in this world. The Persian poet Hafiz writes, We are like lutes once held by God. Being away from his warm body fully explains this constant yearning. Moments of beauty and love give us glimpses of what's missing, but when we try to enshrine them, they elude us. When Lewis pursued whatever the joy had come through, he was always left disappointed. In Augustine's words, Lewis was a pilgrim and suffering for thirst in the desert of this world. Sometimes it takes a long time to realize the dead end of our desires. Augustine didn't recognize his own hunger at first. He said, I remained without any appetite for incorruptible food, not because I was already filled with it, but because the emptier I became, the more I loathed it. So we've looked at some ways that desire, our powerful engine and compass, gets thrown off course or thwarted from God, the X that marks the spot. Now I wanna address three ways that we try and fail to fix the problem of disordered desires. So the first is by oversimplifying desire, the second is by escapism, and the third is by repression. So first, oversimplifying. When you hear the word desire, what is the first thing that you think about? Anyone? Sex. Yeah, sex, exactly. When I told somebody last Friday that I was going to give a lecture on desire, she said, well, you're probably talking about sexual desire specifically. Actually, I'm not, I said. <laughs> but isn't it interesting that the very word desire has mostly become synonymous with our sexual longings? To me, that shows a lack of imagination around this topic. Sex and sexuality are very important, both created goods, and I don't mean to minimize that, but they're not the most important of our desires. Unfortunately, our culture capitalizes on their power to offer us a sex, offer us sex as the solution for every longing. And Freud popularized a way of thinking that suspiciously believes that every desire is just a disguise for some kind of sexual urge. Lewis realized through experience that sex was not what he was ultimately longing for. He wrote, you might as well offer a mutton chop to the man who is dying of thirst as offer sexual pleasure to the desire I am speaking of. Joy is not a substitute for sex. Sex is very often a substitute for joy. Well, sex is the example that springs most readily to mind, but there are others. We often hear that life is all about who has the power, as if to gain power over the whole world is the goal of human life. But you know what they say about absolute power. What do they say? Right. So we can have lots of power, yet be inhuman and unhappy, like Narnia's White Witch. The same goes for freedom, wealth, talent, intelligence, and even good relationships. Saying that any of these are the ultimate goal of human life, what our world is all about is far too simplistic. Francis Schaeffer, who started Libri, describes this reductionist way of thinking as like cutting off a man's limbs to make him fit into a garbage can. None of these desires can be held as ultimate without doing damage to our humanity and the complexity of life. So the second way that we try to address disordered desires wrongly is through escapism. In this framework, desire itself becomes the problem. We should release all attachment and expectation. And this is much emphasized in Buddhism, where craving is considered the primary cause of suffering. 
To free yourself from craving is to reach nirvana. And we can see iterations of this philosophy at work in the Western obsession with mindfulness. In the practice of mindfulness, the goal is to simply be present in the moment and release our thoughts and feelings without judgment. And I do think that some of the aspects of mindfulness can be helpful, but it can also lead to an unhealthy detachment from ourselves and from each other. So yesterday, while I was working at this lecture on a coffee shop down the road, I saw an older woman across from me reading a book called Radical Acceptance, Embracing Your Life with the Heart of a Buddha. And I was like, perfect, an example for my lecture. <laughs> well, every few minutes, she would look up from the book, close her eyes, and sit perfectly still for a while, ignoring her breakfast. I'm not exactly sure what she was trying to do, haven't read the book, but what she was trying to radically accept. But I know that she must have had the desire to buy that book and to put it into practice right there in the middle of the coffee shop. Well, of course, I immediately Googled the book to see what it was about. <laughs> so here's part of the description online. Believing that something is wrong with us is a deep and tenacious suffering, says Tara Brack at the start of this illuminating book. This suffering emerges in crippling self-judgments and conflicts in our relationships, in addictions and perfectionism, in loneliness and overwork, all the forces that keep our lives constricted and unfulfilled. Radical acceptance offers a path to freedom. Great, we don't need the rest of this lecture. Everyone go buy a copy. <laughs> the blurb promises that the author will lead us to trust our innate goodness, showing us how we can develop the balance of clear-sightedness and compassion that is the essence of radical acceptance. From what I read online, this book makes the mistake that we talked about before of believing that humans are inherently good. It pro proposes that the solution to suffering is just to accept ourselves as good, rather than as people who have to keep trying to earn salvation, which is how the author interprets the Genesis account of the Garden of Eden in the fall. But simply accepting ourselves as is doesn't recognize the power of desire to change us, doesn't explain why suffering is something we should even desire to escape at all. A focus on escaping desire devalues the power of desire for getting us to where we want to go. It's there for a reason. The desire to right a wrong is necessary for social justice. The desire for human connection is necessary for healthy relationships. The desire to buy a book from the store is necessary for you to practice radical acceptance. <laughs> In fact, we just really can't function at all without desire. As Jamie Smith said, we're like existential sharks. We have to keep moving to live. Sharks have to keep moving to live. So a third way that people have addressed desire gone wrong is through repression. And unfortunately, repression is particularly associated with the church, though it is far more widespread. The thinking goes, desire is there, yes, but if we don't think about it or acknowledge it, we can avoid its negative effects. We can pretend everything is nice and cozy, even in our own hearts. Well, we only have to look at the recent sex scandals in both the Catholic and the Protestant church to see the damaging effects of repression. What's hidden in darkness will eventually become monstrous, like Gollum cooped up in mountain caves with the ring. Repression signals to ourselves and to those around us that once again, desire itself is the culprit. To want too much is sinful. Becoming righteous means a sort of disembodied floating around on a cloud thinking only super pious thoughts all day. But C.S. Lewis says that we aren't intended to desire less, but more. In his sermon, The Weight of Glory, he writes, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink, 
and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday of the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. We shouldn't be encouraging people to desire less, but more. So this is the fourth part of the lecture. It's a little longer. Redemption, we're getting to the, the good part. <laughs> so, and this is how desire works in our coming to God. We've seen three ways in which people can mistakenly try to deal with disordered desires. Oversimplifying, escaping, or repressing. Now I want to look at how we can use the engine and compass of desire to move us toward our goal. And I'm going to examine some parallels between Augustine's journey and Lewis's. Though they were born in very different eras, both men were raised with some kind of Christianity. Augustine from his devout mother and Lewis by what would have been pretty much the average Protestant Irish's family exposure to church going in the Bible. But both, both Lewis and Augustine experienced what they knew of Christianity as an unwelcome constraint from what they wanted to do. In rejecting Christianity, they both felt freedom to pursue their desires without the question of morality. Augustine says that through this he became to himself a wasteland. Yet in the midst of his sin, he had a deep desire to know the truth, which gave him a passion for philosophy. He was a huge nerd. <laughs> he wanted to know the truth, he said, but not to be known by the truth. That's what he wanted. C.S. Lewis also had a love for rational thought, and he wanted to understand truth. But there was a cynicism in his intellectual life. The beauty he found in his experiences of joy seemed just irrational to him, a product of fantasy. He said, nearly all that I loved, I believed to be imaginary. Nearly all that I believed to be real, I thought grim and meaningless. And I want to make it clear that when I talk about desire, I'm not holding emotions above reason. That's not what I'm talking about. Jamie Smith points out that we can easily reduce humans to thinking thingism, brains on a stick. That's all we are. But we can also go the other way. And Dick Kies, um, who works at the Labrie near Boston, said in a recent lecture on desire that we can also be too quick to dismiss reason's part in shaping our desires. So when I think about my own journey with God, I can see that the two very much go together, so much that they're inextricable. I can't separate them. For both Lewis and Augustine, their journey of reason very much went along with their journey of desire. Augustine wrestled with his sexual habits as well as his attraction to all different kinds of philosophies. Astrology, Manichaeism, fun things. <laughs> Our desire for knowledge can be hugely motivating and it can also be disordered. Lewis and Augustine both desired to know the truth, but even when they became intellectually convinced of Christianity over the years, they struggled with having to surrender control of their desires to God. Augustine wrote, I was as much afraid of being freed from all entanglements as we ought to fear being entangled. Thus, with the baggage of the world, I was sweetly burdened as one in slumber, and my musings on thee were like the efforts of those who desire to awake but who are still overpowered with drowsiness and fall back into sleep slumber, deep slumber. <laughs> Though Augustine had been persuaded of the truth of the gospel, he was afraid to lose the desires he knew so well. I can relate to that. He felt that he couldn't live without them. And yet he was compelled to go onward. He experienced this fierce internal battle as he sat in a garden with a friend. He said, up to the very moment in which I was to become another man, the nearer the moment approached, the greater horror did it strike in me. But it did not strike me back, nor turn me aside. 
but held me in suspense. Finally, Augustine heard a child chanting from next door. Pick it up, read it, pick it up, read it. Since he couldn't think of any nursery rhyme or game that involved that phrase, he took it as a sign for him to pick up the Bible. He opened it and immediately read Romans 12, verse 12. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and, je quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That moment provided Augustine with the confidence he needed to give himself fully to Jesus. He expresses this journey of desire in a poem to God. Late have I loved you, beauty so ancient and so new, late have I loved you. Lo, you are within, but I outside seeking there for you. And upon the shapely things you have made, I rushed headlong, I misshapen. You were with me, but I was not with you. They held me back far from you. Those things which would have no being, were they not in you? You called, shouted, broke through my deafness. You flared, blazed, banished my blindness. You lavished your fragrance. I gasped, and now I pant for you. I tasted you, and now I hunger and thirst. You touched me, and I burned for your peace. So there you can see the reordering of desire. He still has desire, but it's toward God. C.S. Lewis gives a similar account of his own final hurdle to faith. He wrote that his primary desire in life was to have no one interfere with him, <laughs> to have one corner of his life that his was just his business alone. Big keep out sign. <laughs> he saw God as a transcendental interferer. Like a chess player losing the game, Lewis felt the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom he so earnestly desired not to meet. That's what he said. The steady, unrelenting approach of him whom he so earnestly desired not to meet. When he finally gave in and prayed to God, he said he, he was, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. <laughs> After his conversion, Lewis eventually realized that he was misdirected in seeking joy for its own ends. Even joy was only a pointer to what it signified, which was God's holiness. It was holiness that he'd encountered in the landscapes, music, and stories that he loved. He wrote, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Both Lewis and Augustine pursued various desires with the hope of finding fulfillment, along with their intellectual pursuits. When they found that the creative goods they consumed couldn't bring the satisfaction they were looking for, they understood that it was God that they had been seeking. But to find God, they had to let go of their old disordered desires. And I'm not recommending here, just to be clear, that you should follow all your urges to see whether they lead you to satisfaction or not. <laughs> Lewis and Augustine both recognized that their worship of created things was sin and had been damaging. As the saying goes, some people have to learn the hard way. Some will follow disordered desires quite far before they find Jesus. And that's God's grace that he follows after them. 
but people can also get mired for good in cycles of addiction and harm toward themselves and others. Even if they find forgiveness through Christ, the pursuit of disordered desires does have consequences. All of us will have our bouts with following destructive longings. All of us. But we can interrogate our desires before acting on them. The psalmist writes, All my longings lie open before you, O Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. So we can bring our desires to God and ask his spirit to show us which ones we ought to follow to find truth. I think one good test for whether a desire is leading us to the right place is whether it removes us from so-called ordinary things. I've been thinking a lot recently about why people get swept up in cults. That's a topic for another lecture, hopefully. But I think one element that's often appealing is that cult members are given this inside knowledge. They are part of a privileged elite that they believe has the only revelation of truth. And sometimes we can mistakenly see Christianity as a similar kind of removal from the ordinary. But Lewis's recognition of the holiness that came through his experiences of created things didn't diminish his value for those things. He didn't transcend the material world into a merely spiritual realm. Instead, he experienced what he called a baptism of his imagination. He says this, I found the light shining on those woods and cottages in the stories that he had read, and then on my own past life, and on the quiet room where I sat, and on my old teacher where he nodded above his little Tacitus. For now I perceive that while the air of the new region made all my erotic and magical perversions of joy look like solid trumpery, it had no such disenchanting power over the bread upon the table or the coals in the grate. So there, even the ordinary became part of the holy in this. Augustine writes of our ability to enjoy created things when desire is reordered. The physical objects please you, praise God for them, but turn back your love to their creator, lest in those things which please you, you displease him. The good that you love is from him, and insofar as it is also for him, it is both good and pleasant. But it will rightly be turned to bitterness if whatever comes from him is not rightly loved and if he is deserted for love of the creature. We should be thankful for the good gifts of God's creation and enjoy them. Some people are called to live a life with a higher form of self-discipline. For example, there are Olympic athletes who have a strict training regimen and diet. I am not one of them, <laughs> but we can also still be physically healthy without doing that or even wanting to do that. But we still have to remember that our desires shouldn't control us. The Apostle Paul quotes a popular Corinthian saying at that time, everything is permissible for me which shows you what kind of society they had, then corrects it. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So our longings for the eternal don't remove us from the goodness of this created world, but rather reveal it to us for the first time. When our desires become rightly ordered, we can enjoy all the good things God gives us without them controlling us. They no longer become our integration point, our primary means of fulfillment. We stop placing on created things a burden that they can't bear, but instead recognize them as reflections of God. As T.S. Eliot says in his poem, The Four Quartets, we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. So the final section of this talk, almost there, is about how we can shape our desires. We know that what we often desire is not what's good for us or for others, 
and what leads us away from God. But how can we shape our desires so that it, they carry us towards God's vision of the good life? Do we have to go through everything that Lewis and Augustine went through? In Jamie Smith's language, how can we recalibrate the compass of our hearts? Well, we often hear from both sides of the political spectrum about the importance of freedom, but we rarely ask, freedom to what end? What do we want to be free to do? We want freedom, but we don't want the hard work of becoming people who are able to use that freedom well. We often want to be free to follow our desires, but not to learn how to direct them properly for our own and for others' flourishing. Ancient writers called this practice of shaping our desires the pursuit of virtue. Augustine called virtue ordered love. Jamie Smith emphasizes the necessity of embodied practices that build habits of virtue. These habits will help shape our desires toward the right goal. We all engage in what he calls liturgical practices, whether we consider ourselves religious or not. So when we go to the mall, this is the liturgical practice. We think of liturgy as something we do in a church. But when we go to the mall, we go to these shrines, these brands that promise that they will fill us and make us cool. And we take part in these practices that teach us what to love, not by telling us you should love things that make you cool, but by engaging our desire, by working on our hearts. The songs on the radio, the shows on Netflix, the magazines in the grocery store, all of these are constantly shaping your vision of what the good life looks like even without you thinking about it. We continually absorb these messages. But as I said before, just knowing that something isn't right isn't enough to change our behavior. We can logically say, oh yeah, I know that not everybody looks like that celebrity, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't work on your heart and make you want those things. Again, this is not to discount the importance of reason and understanding, only to recognize that it's just not strong enough to get us to where we want to go. It needs the turbo boost of desire to propel it, and the practice of habit to cement it into our natural ways of being. So Aristotle, guy who talked about Tellus, emphasizes the importance of imitation in learning virtue. As Dick Kai says, the highest form of imitation is to imitate Christ, the perfect human who had perfectly ordered desire, desires, has perfectly ordered desires. And then moving from there, we can also imitate the Christ-like qualities in those around us. So after this lecture, you might want to spend some time thinking about family members and friends whom you admire. Consider what it is that makes you admire them. <coughs> Maybe it's because they're total babes or totally rolling in dough, but if it's not that, if it happens to be because they possess some virtue that you'd like to see more of in your own life, they can become a pattern for imitation. You can practice becoming more generous, hospitable, honest, gracious, or whatever Christ-like qualities you admire. And I know that I learn a lot from the students here um, of Christ-like qualities, and I hope that sometimes they see that for me. Um, but yeah, we get, we get to learn that in Christian community. That's one of the reasons to live in Christian community. We can also imitate people that we've never even met, our heroes. One of my biggest heroes is the Victorian era poet Gerard Manley Hopkins. I'm not even quoting him in this lecture. That's amazing, but I am talking about him. <laughs> he was a celibate Jesuit priest who wasn't very good at teaching, and as a poet, he had no professional success in his lifetime. His life was cut short by sickness. Doesn't sound that heroic. His poetry became really popular after his death, and I came to love it as a teenager. But I've also learned a lot from his patience, from seeing, reading about how he went through suffering. 
His example of steadfastness and suffering has been persuasive to me in a way that just hearing patience is a virtue could never accomplish. I feel like we're old friends because he's been a companion in my own struggles to be steadfast and patient. His story has inspired me to live a better story too. The power of story is very important in shaping our lives. And I gave a lecture a while ago on fiction where I talked about this, but just to refresh your memory and for those of you who weren't there, stories capture our moral imagination. Rather than just telling us what we should want, they train us to want it. We can become more deeply immersed in the Christian story through the embodied traditional practices of the church, like confession, communion, and baptism. And my church is always hammering on this point and saying, this is the bigger story, and this is how we do this. And those things train into even into our bodies when we kneel for confession, when we take the Eucharist. Uh, they, they work it into our bodies that we're part of a bigger story. When we think of our desires as part of this larger story, a story that's not primarily about us, our longings will be put into a better perspective. The power of story to shape our moral imagination means that even fictional characters can become people who inspire us toward virtue. I think that's cool. For example, Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird is one of my models for courage. I think more than, one, more than just me. So through the imitation of virtue, we see a reversal of Augustine's chain of heavy bondage that he talked about with addiction. Instead of disordered desire leading to habit and habit leading to addiction, we have rightly ordered desire leading to habit and habit leading to virtue. And the more we practice who we want to become, the more attractive it becomes to us. Just as eating our veggies or exercising becomes more natural to us the more we practice it. The power of habit is well established in neuroscience. So when Paul calls us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, we know that <coughs> desires actually can be changed. It's important to remember God's promise that in our pursuit of virtue, we aren't just alone. We don't just buckle down and grit our teeth. This, this person writing this uh, book on radical acceptance, that was her idea of what Christianity was, just trying and trying and trying always so hard um, and, and just wallowing in shame, basically. But we have God's own strength dwelling in us. The poet John Donne, I read him to the students earlier this week. We get to hear it twice. <laughs> he was a contemporary of Shakespeare. I just love old dead guys, man. <laughs> he wrote about his struggle against disordered desire. And this is his very well-known poem, Holy Sonnet 14. Put your poetry ears on. Batter my heart, three-person God. For you as yet, but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend. That I may rise and stand, o'erthrow me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like an usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but oh, to no end. Reason your viceroy in me, sh me should defend, but is captived and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain, but I am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chased, except you ravish me. This sonnet can feel a bit shocking in its language. Dunn was never one to beat around the bush. And here he recognizes that his heart has built up these defenses against God. Reason is God's gift and should defend him from the power of sin, but instead it deceives him and itself becomes a captive to sin. 
Like a young woman forced to marry her beloved's enemy, the poet is bound to what he hates instead of to the God he loves. He recognizes that it will take God's power to break the force of sin in his life. He doesn't want God to just gently knock at the door of his heart or try to shine his heart up and mend it like a broken pot. He wants God to come like a battering ram and break down all his defenses. And this power will cause him to desire God above the lesser things that bind him. As Lewis wrote, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. Paul speaks of this in Romans, that the transformation of our desires requires a violent death of our old nature. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You can hear Augustine here and Smith, and done. We can't automatically do what we want to do. When Paul says flesh, by the way, he's not talking about the physical body, but the sinful part of human nature, the fallen part. So what's the solution? Paul exclaims, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why? Because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. So only through Jesus we can die to the old nature with its disordered desires. Through the Holy Spirit we're changed into a new creation. God dwelling in us to change who we are from the inside out. But because we still live in a fallen world, we experience the reality of unmet longings, even our own hunger and thirst for righteousness. Augustine writes, When at last I cling to you with my whole being, there will be no more anguish or labor for me, and my life will be alive indeed alive because filled with you. But now it is very different. Anyone whom you fill, you also uplift, but I am not full of you. And so I am a burden to myself. Joys over which I ought to weep do battle with sorrows that should be a matter for joy. And I do not know which will be victorious. But I also see griefs that are evil at war in me with joys that are good, and I do not know which will win the day. This is agony, Lord, have pity on me. It is agony. See, I do not hide my wounds. You are the physician and I am sick. You are merciful, I in need of mercy. C.S. Lewis describes a moment when we will finally get in, into the midst of the holiness we long for, and then we will become an ingredient in the divine happiness. And that's what he calls to experience glory, to be given the glory of God, part of that. As Paul puts it, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. So right now, we're still in an in-between time of longing for the kingdom of God, but we wait with patience for the beauty of God's holiness that will fulfill all our desires at last. So, that's part one. <laughs> and at the beginning of the next term, well, second half of this term, it's sort of hard to know how to think about it. I'm going to give a sequel to this lecture, and that's going to focus on how we can expect our desires to be filled. And it's going to hopefully be a little more practical than this one. I haven't written it yet, so who knows? Um, and just dealing a bit with how, what our mistaken conceptions are of what God promises us and how we can deal with our longings. 
Um, so now is the time to have discussion. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Um, and and you don't have to just talk to me, you can talk to each other. Yeah, feel free, Megan, to get up and get some. I, ju I just want to say <laughs> that uh, I desire a part two. <laughs> Great, I'm glad to hear it. Um, we get to clap? You can clap after the. Okay, you can clap after The, you know, as you're talking about reshaping our moral imagination and giving us a scriptural story to help us reimagine desire through that story. And uh, my question has to do with the final part that you're talking about of mm -hmm. measures to maybe train desires. Mm -hmm. I think that's where a lot of people are at. They, they don't know what to do with desires and they're like, how to make steps forward. Mm -hmm. And you, I guess, made two points, that I, I, at least that's how I heard it. One of uh, cultural liturgies and uh, imitating mm -hmm. people that we admire mm -hmm. as almost uh, an external practice. Mm -hmm. And then at the very end, uh, uh, an, an internal hope mm -hmm. of, okay, um, God at work in us. Mm -hmm to shape those desires and now and I guess my question is thinking about how those two work and sometimes people will say I just need God to change my heart and then I'll start deciding it and <laughs> or I just need to change my behavior but they start in depending on the practice rather than looking for an internal renewal mm -hmm. um, but I guess I guess you need both and I really appreciate that but I'm just thinking can you can you help us think a little bit more about that. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think this, it would be also great to hear from other people in the room how that process has worked in their own lives, because I'm not sure if it looks exactly the same for every person, but um, I think that um, also looking at Augustine and Lewis, and, and then, yeah, I'd say in my own life too, it's definitely both, <laughs> like the more you, you you give a lecture, you should know the answer to this, um, of, of acting as if, and how sometimes we, we get people say, well, I don't just want to act as if, and you, you have to remind me of all, all you said, but that there can be some kinds of acting as if that can be helpful. And I think that, um, you know, you see a child learning to become an adult, and we're talking today about how Samuel and Sarah Beth hated to clean their rooms at first, and they would lie on the ground and cry when I tried to get them to clean. Um, and they had to act as if they liked cleaning, even though they didn't, to now sometimes it seems like they have a legit desire to clean, um, or at least to, to see things more orderly. So I think, um, and if you're never taught to do anything by your parents, then often you don't see the purpose for it or get to have the enjoyment of, of a job well done. So I think um, we definitely need those practices that shape <coughs> us, and, and or you don't even get to see what a job well done would look like, um, and it might not feel good at first. So I think there's that that part of formation, um, and then and then yeah, but then I, I guess I've seen it happen so differently in different people's lives that sometimes you know even like addiction, I've heard stories where people just <coughs> the Holy Spirit comes and like immediately 
they're not addicted anymore. And then other people that it's like years before they're not addicted. So I don't know. God, I guess God knows what we need, but I don't think that there's an excuse to say like, I don't have to try. I'm just waiting for God to do this. Um, and, and I think that's this, this idea too in scripture of like working out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God that works in you. I don't know. That's a mysterious relationship to me. Like what is, what is our part? What is God's? Um, but I know that I've experienced moments of grace that I didn't deserve um, when, it, when I definitely knew it was some, you know, something I couldn't do myself. And then other times where I've had to work really hard, <laughs> um, I think still with the grace of God, but, but where it was gritting my teeth, you know? So I don't know. How, what, what, what have you experienced? You've, you've dealt with. I, I have no problem with desire. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, I think that that's really helpful. I think that what's been helpful for me, and as you know, and just thinking about what you said, is that I grew up in a tradition where I needed to receive grace, mm -hmm. that moment by moment forgiveness. Mm -hmm. That's what helped reshape my desire, rather than feeling I needed to beat myself down mm -hmm. in order to gain God's approval, mm -hmm. in order to move forward. Mm -hmm. That I needed to say, no, that I think it was. Was it Augustine or um, the one that said, you see my wounds? Mm -hmm, that's Augustine. Uh, and you are the, the sole physician, you are the physician. Mm -hmm. um, just being able to show one's wounds to God, mm -hmm. one's vulnerabilities, one's honesties, mm -hmm. and know that we stand before a God who is willing to forgive us because he wants to heal us. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, uh, so that's been really helpful to me just to to walk in forgiveness rather than feeling like I need to beat myself into perfection mm -hmm. before I'm ready to be forgiven. Right. Almost I need to kind of get, I need to kind of get spiffied up. Yeah. Um, almost as if someone's trying to go home to a parent and okay, I need to get my act together before they might mm -hmm. take me back in. Like the prodigal. But God <laughs> is running yeah. out to meet us. Right. You know. Yeah. And so that's been helpful for my mm -hmm. continual discipleship. Mm -hmm. that's really helpful and I think it's it's good to to remember too that with with our desires drawing us towards God it's like God is pulling us it's not just us running after him he's he's going after us <coughs> and it's put that in us to bring us to him and and yeah that there's always forgiveness um at that um whenever we repent it's not so that we can just sort of wallow in shame and feel the weight of that and shame I think is a it's it's practical in some ways societies use shame a lot to motivate people but i think that ultimately doesn't deal with the problem of disordered desire of sin because it just goes underground um and then it gets dark and so i think that it's yeah even though it can be effective it's ultimately not a very good um way to to change things um for good. yeah so do you think it's safe to say something like this that uh, we have desires Yes. Satisfy. <laughs> no, hear me out. <laughs> so we have these desires. We have desires, and we find some of them fulfilled. And then once they're fulfilled, it's not completely satisfying. Then we have other desires, some with which we work better than with others. But you think it's safe to say that that is one way that God is made known to us by us using those desires, following those desires, and then eventually coming to the conclusion that ultimate satisfaction almost can only come from knowing Him. 
That's a great summary of my lecture. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Yes. So, so you see God um, working, using those desires to bring us closer to Him. So, in, you know, what would you want to expand on that? Yeah, I mean, I def definitely, and yeah, that's what I had been trying to get at, and I think we can take a very, sometimes very roundabout route, um, and, and God is so merciful to us that even when we go through, when we follow the desires to really disastrous places, that he can still um, forgive us and rescue us from that and bring healing. Um, but 